Morena, Tafana. Hey, dude. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way. And Richard tomorrow. And Lisa. Oh, Lisa's not here. And Eve on Friday. Wow, we got all these birthdays. It's awesome. Happy birthday. Um, you guys got it easy last week, I hear. You didn't have to put up with me. So I'm going to give you a double whammy this morning. How's that? I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> Oh, really? Hey, look, I'll start with a story and then we'll get stuck into it because it is going to be a little bit packed. Uh, there's a lot that I'm going to share with you. So, yep, just wind up that, that uh, brain and the mind and get things going because there's going to be a lot I'm throwing you away. Starting with, um, and this is how far back we're going, when I became a Christian when I was 21, okay, so I spent 21 years of my life doing basically whatever I pleased that is after my father died, because before my father died, there was no way I was doing anything I pleased, right? Because that was dad. Um, and and kind of came to, came to know the Lord uh, in, a, in a miraculous way, um, completely changed my life, and I ended up in a brethren church in Rome, Italy. And the church was amazing. It was great for me because the discipleship plan they had in place, the studies we did, it was amazing. But I also found it difficult because... They were very literal about the Bible. And as a new Christian and not having grown up with much Christian teaching other than Catholicism, but that really didn't teach me much other than, you know, kind of Easter and Christmas, really. All the smaller detail, I had no idea. But these guys were amazing and they knew a lot and so I learned and I drank it all in. And I've shared this story with you, I think, a few times. But at one stage in this church, we had a very strong young adult group that I was a part of and... You see, all the women in the church had to wear veils and they weren't allowed to speak in the service. Yeah, no, no, you couldn't even do that. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and being a new Christian, again, I just assumed, that's cool. That's the way things work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one of the girls in our uh, group was just... She was just, nah, this is not going to, I'm going to speak up one day. And we're like, don't do it. You're going to cause mayhem. And she's like, no, no, I'm going to do it. And she did. She got up in the middle of the service one day and prayed. And half the church emptied out. It was amazing. And, you know, as a young Christian, not really knowing that church had any kind of politics, I just thought we're all Christian and we all do things, you know, different from the world. Oh, man, this was amazing. Like, for me, I'm like, oh. And the elders quickly got up and they said, look, we're going to call a meeting tonight and we're going to spend the afternoon praying and searching scriptures on this. And, you know, we don't want to make a call right now, but come tonight and we will discuss what just happened in the service. And I'm like, oh, dude, you broke the church. This is cool. <laughs> you know, and she was all proud, but her parents were so mortified and upset. But anyway, um, we all come. Now, this is a small church that met in an apartment, in a ground apartment in Rome. Now, the ground apartment had two bedrooms. It's a small place. And it had a, they had broken a wall through, so the two bedrooms became like one with the living room. So it was, it, we barely fit 60 people in this place, right? There was some 200 people that showed up that night. 
It was the other churches that had gotten whiff of what happened that day, and they all showed up, and you know, we're all getting into it, and, and we're all like, ooh, this is so cool. There's a fight going to happen. You know, all us young people in the corner just kind of chilling, like, ooh. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. If not, we would have recorded the whole thing. Um, you know, live feed and all. But we didn't have any of that. And when the elders came in, they all sat down in this cramped up space, and they said, look, we've searched scriptures. We don't think she did anything wrong. <gasps> Gasps everywhere. Several couples got up and were so upset by the decision. They said, you guys are going against God's word. And they left, never to come back again. That's how important this issue was for them. But I sat there, and I've shared this with you, I sat there confused, actually angry. I was like, what do you mean? It's okay. You've been telling me this whole time or acting like it's not okay. Now it's okay. Well, the Bible does say, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, women need to wear veils and quiet and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we think it's okay to pray in church. They just can't preach. So in 2019, when I went back to that church, I've been back several times, but I came back to it that time. They had a woman preacher. I was like, what's the deal? I remember that day, and there was one old fellow that goes, you remember that? I'm like, of course I remember it. It had such an indelible impact on me. And it was fascinating because then it made me start to question, why do I believe what I believe? Am I just letting people tell me? I mean, they're all good intention, and they're reading their Bibles. It's not like it's, you know, not there. So how are we interpreting this book? So, you know, couple of years being there, they kind of identified some of my gifts. We started leading worship in that little church, and um, one day they asked me to, to do a preaching thing, you know, come up and preach, Rob, because I'm a man, I can do it. I was quite tempted to wear a skirt, but that would have gone down real bad. Um, so I went up to preach, and this is how I started my sermon. So you can imagine the environment we're in, it's 1993, um, this is how I started it. The Word of God is not the Bible. <laughs> you can imagine all the elders at the front row going, who led him up front? The Word of God is not the Bible. So, I opened up to John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I said, how does the word become flesh? How does it walk and talk? Huh. It's fascinating because we have different versions of the Bible. And the reason we have different versions is the way you kind of interpret what you're reading. So you might have it in the language that we understand today as opposed to somebody in the 16th century if you want to read the King James Version, right? There was one guy about 150 years ago, Robert Young, decided to translate the Bible literally. It's a very difficult read. But in it, he says this, the one and only son who came from the Father, he said this, the only begotten of the Father. Now, he was using the Greek words here of come from as something that came from within. 
And the old English of begotten means not so much a son per se as we would interpret that today, but something that's come from inside, something that's actually been birthed within you. Which I thought, oh, that's pretty powerful. Our English doesn't capture that. It's like my boy. But this came from within. And it's interesting, when Jesus was on the mount being tempted out in the desert, Satan comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's fascinating. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, verse 3, Jesus loved quoting Deuteronomy, by the way. It's not, a fa- it's not a great book to read, to be honest. It's difficult. But a lot of Jesus is in there. It's a great book if you can pack it down with Jesus lenses. But anyway, he quotes this. And the interesting word is this word mouth. Because the Greek word that's used is a word called stoma. Anyone know what word we use today with that word? Stomach. The Hebrew word is peh, P-E-H. Now, both the Hebrew and the Greek have actual words for mouth, but they chose not to use it. Stoma means coming from deep within. The Hebrew word peh means even, even more coming from your diaphragm, coming from within, the air within you. Big difference in mouth, isn't it? Just a bigger picture of it. So, in my arrogance, I'm going to retranslate this a little bit to say, man shall not live on bread alone, but on all the word that comes from within God. This is what it's about. The word of God is not the Bible. Now, fascinatingly, I'm using the Bible to prove my point. Because the word of, I'm not saying the word of God, the Bible, is not from God. It is. And I'm going to confuse you thoroughly, but I need you to go through this journey so that the final point at the end of this whole thing will make a whole lot more sense. But let's put it this way. Salvation does not come from reading the Bible. In fact, reading the Bible sometimes confuses us even more. What are they talking about? What's going on? I remember the first time they gave me a Bible... I had given my life to God. I had no idea what I'd signed up for. They gave me a student NIV Bible. I took it, and guess where I started from? That's where you start every book, right? Unless you want to read the ending, and you go to the back, and you read the last few pages. But even that's even more confusing. So you start from, and you get confused. I did. Thanks to the church that I was in in Rome, they helped me read the Bible. I didn't know you had to start halfway. Go figure. God's got a sense of humor with that. But salvation doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the brazen altar. It comes from Jesus. It's the first step in our journey. Now, for some of us, sometimes the Bible does help us in that journey. But the brazen altar, that sacrifice, what we just talked about, a communion, the cross, that's where it all begins in that moment, and it only comes from Jesus. Let me just say this. The Bible is not our daily bread. Jesus is. 
The word for the day is only ever Jesus. You know, we've used the Ephesians verses about, you know, getting the word of God as the sword and the whole thing so we can attack people with it. Uh -uh. Point them to Jesus. The New Zealand Bible Society has a great little understanding of what the Bible is there for. They say this, it tells the story of God's relationship with the masterpiece of his creation people. The Bible says that its words are God-breathed. Now, although exactly how God-breathed the words remains a mystery, but most Christians agree that God inspired the writers as they recorded his words. Going on, the Bible, it is the foundation to the Christian faith. It is through the Bible that people can learn more about God and he's planned to restore all people and the entire world to himself by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live on earth. But every time we do this, we've got to look at it as followers of Jesus. He is our word. He is our daily bread. I know a lot of people, a lot of people that know their Bibles very well, but I'd question whether they really know Jesus. And sometimes we get into this habit of reading the Bible for information, for learning, which is all good. Please don't hear me bagging out the Bible with this. Like I said, I'm using the Bible to prove a point. The challenge for you is to read it a little bit deeper than just reading words. It's to read it knowing what it cost. Knowing who you follow. Knowing how broken you are. Knowing how sinful you are. Knowing what it cost so that you could read this. Knowing that you want to become more like Jesus, more like him. This series We've broken it down as spiritual disciplines. Uh, first week, we talked about repentance, when, and out of that, we are now doing communion more often, giving you the opportunity to do the first thing that is important to us all as followers of Jesus, and that is to repent. Because not one of you have not sinned even before coming into this space. My first thought this morning was, oh, it's so cold but I used an expletive because it was that cold. And you know how long it took to get my car going this morning. I wanted to get work early because I haven't been. It's been a bit of a rough time for me physically. And I get into the car and the car turns on and, and then everything fogs up, right? You can't see anything out. And I've got my little card, you know, my, my debit card, and I'm scraping the windows because there's ice on it. And I'm not happy with God in that moment because now my hands are freezing. Repentance is the basic, step one, that we need to do daily because we are who we are, even with Jesus. In communion, we're reminded of that, we're reminded of what he's done for us. Step one, 101, 102, reflection, self-examination. We talked, I gave you the tool of the examen in that, series, in that sermon, how to reflect on 
where you are at. You know, how are you acting? Why are you acting the way you're acting? What are the emotions that are playing out? What's going on in you? We're really good at looking at the world. We're really good at analysing all of that. But we're not really good at analysing ourselves. So you imagine CNN or Fox News doing a piece on you. What are they going to say? What's the uh, analyst going to be pulling out in your life? That'd be kind of scary, by the way. But that's something that we should be doing, reflection. Reflect on where you're at, what you're doing. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about contemplation. How do we encounter God? And we all do that very differently. I talked about some of the different ways that we encounter God. Some, some of you love to go on long walks. I know Richard Willis in particular, he loves it. Goes up the escarpment. That, to me, would be death. I'd be countering God in a very different way to Richard. Please take me, Lord, now. You know? Other people, it's, it's the music. You see them, they just, they just that's, they're, they're ecstatic about it, whether their hands are up, they're really into it, they're waving flags, they're doing their thing, and you see them encountering God, you think they're crazy sometimes, but they were also jealous because they do connect with God in such a way. And for those of us who do it differently, maybe in solitude, away from everybody. That's what we talked about, contemplation. Where do you encounter God in your life? What are the places that you encounter God? I'm doing this sermon backwards because normally this would be at the end, but I'm doing it in the middle because I'm going to give you 202, which is this, reception, which is basically discipleship. How do you grow? How do you grow? What are you doing intentionally to grow? You know, repentance is great. Self-reflection is really important. Uh, encountering God is, is absolutely necessary. But what are the intentional steps that you're doing in your life to grow? Well, that's where the Bible comes into play. It's not just an information book. It's there to help you grow, help you to know God, help you to know Jesus. His words are there. If you love somebody, you'll do every, you'll find everything about them. You'll know what their favorite songs are. You'll know what, you know, you'll follow their social media. You'll, you'll do all sorts of weird stuff because you want to get to know the person well. Well, you've got it in the Bible. If you want to know Jesus, go in there and read it. Yeah, it's confusing, absolutely. That's why he puts teachers in place. But the challenge is, if you want to intentionally grow, you've got to get to know him. Uh, in your newsletters, you would have found a folded sheet, I'll be emailing it out to everybody as well, on a way of maybe engaging with Scripture a little differently than just reading it. It's called the Lectio Divina. We used to do this at Apollo. We don't do it here at Hut City. But we used to have Lectio Divina groups. Just sit around the table. You just pick a passage, find a passage, and you read it four times. The first time, you read it. The second time, you receive it. What speaks to you? For God so loved the world, and I stop on world, and I mean, what does that mean? What does God mean by world? And I reflect on that. Does he mean the universe, the cosmos? Does he mean all of me? What does he mean? And what does that love mean? Reflect on that. And you go to your usher, you respond, Lord, what do you mean? Do I need to love the world as you love it? Is that what you're calling me to do as well? And then you rest on it. Let it sit. 
you know, you want to read the Bible in a year, you don't read a Bible in a year with Lectio Divina. It'll take you 10 years. But that's the point. For some people, it's Bible memorization. For others, it's just actually you read it four times. And by then, you just let it sit within you. You respond to it. You receive it. And then you rest on it. You've got a little copy of it in your newsletter. The whole point of what I'm trying to do here is to lead us into this next step, which is the final step in our talk on the temple this morning, the Holy of Holies, which is a fascinating space in the whole... It's like coming into God's bedroom, right? It's the one room in the house... I don't know about you guys, the one room I don't even let my kids in half the time because it's a private space. It's our space. And I don't usually go into my kid's bedroom because it's their space. We had a rule in our house. The house had to be clean, but you could do whatever you want in your bedroom. Don't expect me to come in with a vacuum. You've got to do it yourself until things start growing and then we have to go in there and fumigate. But that's another issue. But this is God's space. And when we look at the tabernacle, there it is right at the end there. You've got to go through these spaces to get to it. You've got to go past the brazen altar, past the, the, the bowl, and you've got to go into the holy space and then past the curtain into the holy of holies. That's the cutaway view of uh, Solomon's temple. And you can see at the end there, the holy of holies, not the storerooms behind there, but where the big flying things are. That's what it looks like. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like, because that is the main piece. That is technically the only furniture that needs to be in that Holy of Holies. It's the only thing God wants in there. If you don't know what it looks like, this clip might help. Hopefully it works. Will it work? Yes. Isn't that cool? Steven Spielberg was so afraid when he was doing this. He wanted to get it exactly right. So you had a team of scholars to design it as it's written in the Bible. Not with the snakes. Don't worry about the snakes. That's a whole other thing. And that there is the mercy seat. And God inhibits that space between the cherubim. Just in case you've never seen it before, right? It was this box made of acacia wood overlaid in gold. The lid was solid gold. And you had the cherubim and where the cherubim whims touched uh, it was where the Shekinah glory of God inhibited, inhabited. sorry, And the seat was known as the mercy seat. Now, the veil, before you went into the Holy of Holies, there was this big curtain. Now, just to give you an idea how big this curtain was, it was 60 feet tall. How high are these ceilings? 
<laughs> Nine meters, which is 20, 30, 30 feet? About 30 feet tall. So double the height of this room. The width of the curtain was 30 feet, about nine meters wide. How wide are we here? What do you think? Is it nine meters, 10 meters? You can count the little squares. 20 meters? Let's just say it's as wide from here to there. It's a big curtain and it was one piece sewn together. There was no split down the middle and it was four inches thick. Four times two and a half, that's about 10 centimetres. That's a thick piece of curtain. And so it gives you a whole new meaning when you go to Matthew and you read about the temple, the, 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 the veil split down the middle when Jesus uh, died on that cross. That was no simple tear. No human could actually do that. It's not like a veil as we know a veil today, which is this kind of thin thing that you can kind of rip open. That thick, that big. And, and the, the priest never went in. He only went in through the side. And in, in those days, they were so worried that if the priest made a mistake in the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around them in case he died in there because no one else was allowed to enter into that space. And they'd pull him out if he, if he didn't come out after a day. That was, that was what they did. Never entered through the middle, always through the sides. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. What it screams to me when I, you know, you go into a bedroom and you see people, how they live, and you see football posters or musicians or books, and you can get a feel for how a person is, you know, what they like, what they dislike, you know, stuff like that. You can see it in their bedroom. With God, it screams holy. There's no other way to describe it. There's a reason why it's called the Holy of Holies. There's a reason why it is what it is. It's holy. It's incredibly holy. And it's something we Baptists have lost, I think, and I've shared this before. You know, the Catholics do it so good because when you walk into their space, you walk into their church, there is a sense of, oh, we're in church now. And that's what it would have felt like going into the temple. You walk into the space and you're like, ooh, okay, God is here. Because we forget that God, as much as there's grace and love, he's holy. And it frustrates me sometimes that we take advantage of that. The great thing about God is that he wants us to learn our way. When it comes to learning about him, he's really quite the breadth of him. We can learn in different ways. It's the way our personalities are developed. But when it comes to worshiping, there's actually only one way to worship him. And he actually dictates to us how that happens. And the frustrating thing sometimes for us is, I don't like the music, or I don't want to be here, or I don't think this is good, or that doesn't sound great. That's not what it's about. It's the one time we need to just sit and be in honoring who our God is. Quoting myself here, nowhere in the Bible does it state that God leaves it up to us on how to worship him. In fact, he's laid down some very specific rules as to what he expects of us when it comes to worshiping him. We've got to remember, first and foremost, he's a holy God. And he deserves everything, all of us. 
This is what was inside that Ark of the Covenant. There were three items in there. There was uh, the rod or the staff of Aaron. There was a golden bowl of manna. And there was also the Ten Commandments. Time's going away. I know I'm going on for a bit, but let me quickly run you through this. Okay, first of all, the mana. It speaks to our stomach. Remember, what's within us. You know, as God says, the tempter came to him and Jesus responds by saying, you know, if you're calling me the Son of God, no, no, no. It's written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on all the word that comes from within God. The mana was what sustained the people through the desert. God reminds us that what sustains you today, communion, the bread and the cup, that sustains us. It's our new spiritual mana. Going on, we've got the Ten Commandments in there as well. What's that mean? What's it all about? It's all about the heart. Fascinating thing about the heart. In Romans 8, 7, 8, he goes on, Paul says, the mind governed by flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit. If you need the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit lives within you. And Paul goes on in chapter 2 of Romans, he says, you know, actually the law is written on your heart. It's from within you. It's part of you. There's a reason why we want to sometimes memorize the Bible, so that we can have God's word within us. He reminds us of that. Well, well, what's the rod of Aaron then? The rod of Aaron's a fascinating one. It's the head. You know the reason why God wanted the rod of Aaron in there? Anyone know? No one's read the book of Numbers? Yeah, it's all about numbers, but there's some stories in it too. He's telling Moses, God's telling Moses, put the rod of Aaron in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because your people rebel against me. And this is to remind people not to rebel. Fascinating, huh? Because the rod of Aaron was used at times to deal with Pharaoh, to deal with the sea, to deal with the people, miraculously in many ways. But it was in there, as God says, to just quell the people who are rebellious. You know, it gets into our heads sometimes. It doesn't make any logical sense to follow a crucified saviour. Of course it doesn't. There's no logic to it. That's the point. What does it mean to be a Christian? Huh? Difficult. Our heads get all muddled up. What if aliens landed tomorrow? Does that change everything? I've had people tell me that. When's Jesus coming back? It's all in our heads. The rod is to keep us disciplined, keep us focused. Don't get sidetracked by all these things. And there you have the fullness of what God holds important. This is what's in his bedroom. Reminds us of his provision. Reminds us of what's, what his heart is about and gives us direction. These are the things that he holds to us. What's fascinating is that the tabernacle resides now in all of us. We are the tabernacle now. You know, when we go back to John 1, 4, where the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, 
good old Robert um, Young translated this a little bit differently. Instead of saying dwelling among us, he uses the word tabernacle. Because that's literally what it means. Jesus didn't just dwell among us, he did tabernacle with us. Isn't that fascinating? We read about the temple, and some of us are even proponents of a new temple to be built, but Jesus blew that away for a reason. He has come to tabernacle among us. We are now that tabernacle. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. This is all temple talk, right? Um, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as we tabernacle together, as some people have done. They've neglected that, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. That was written 2,000 years ago, and we still believe that that day is near. Amen? And that sums up everything, that everything Jesus has done is fulfill this temple, this tabernacle, and now we are it. We are tabernacling together. Is that a word? It is now, right? It's great to do tabernacle with you this morning because we are reminded the brazen altar right there, the washing of repentance through baptism, the, the candle, the, can, uh, the menorah, the, the light of the Spirit shining God throughout, bringing light into the space and place as we come together, allowing him to move us and shape us, the will of the Father, as we break bread through the covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. We come into the Holy of Holies with our stomach, heart, and head, giving it all back to God. And then heading back out again to do what we have to do and live, but reminded every day that Jesus calls us to tabernacle together. For that is what he came for. It's a bit of a long journey there, and I've taken to 11.30, which is already too late. But I pray something may have stuck with you through this. I pray that God may um, just show you the power of what his temple was and what is now found in Jesus Christ. May the word that you hear every day, as much as we want to read our Bibles and learn more about Jesus, but may that word Jesus remain strong within you in every step you take, in every breath you have. For he is. He is all. And it's to him that we point to. I ask our music team to come up and close up for us. I was supposed to do a short sermon this morning because I knew there was a whole lot of things going on. Sorry. I didn't get to speak one week. This is what happens. Dear Lord God,
May we be reminded. Sometimes it's great to read the Bible. It's always great to read the Bible, Lord. But it's not just a book of information. It's a book that we carry as part of our journey in growing with you. Our intentionality of following Jesus and growing deeper, becoming more like him. As we give up ourselves more and more to become more and more like you, Jesus. Of repentance and reflection, contemplation and reception. Receiving you, Jesus. Pray you bless us, Lord. Watch over us, Father, I pray, because this world does everything it does to pull us away from you. Load us up with all the things that just draw us away from you. And our own sinful nature does love to play that part too, Lord. Name above all names. The one we glorify, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. May his name be on your stomach. Amen.